0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Grady Stiles, the homicidal lobster boy of Florida. Who was Grady Stiles? Well, he's a sideshow performer who was born with a condition called ectodactyly, that caused his hands and feet to develop only two fingers that appeared like lobster claws. Grady Styles became a celebrity carnival and sideshow circuit performer, becoming one of the highest paid attractions. However, tragically, Grady lived a life filled with substance abuse, addiction, and death.
1: Don't we all though, the the death part?
0: No, 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 that's not what we do here. I say the last line and you go. I am not part of the human race. Grady Franklin Stiles Jr. was born June 26, 1937. According to his father, Grady Stiles Sr., his family had a long history of ectodactyly, dating back to roughly the 1840s. Grady Jr. was the fourth child of Stiles Sr. and his wife, Edna. Capitalizing off of his own deformity, Stiles Sr. had taken up a life in the sideshow world. He would travel the country making money as an attraction in various carnivals and circuses. Roughly around the age of seven years old, Styles Jr. was incorporated into the act. As trauma passed on from father to son, so did Styles Jr. incorporate his own children into his act. He was married twice to the same woman and had four children of his own, two of whom were also born with ectodactyly. They collectively performed as the
1: lobster family. Can you before we look at these pictures, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that that trope or that stereotype that we see in movies or whatever, where it's like the kid who's like, I want to go and be a dancer. And the the dad's like, no, no son of mine is going to dance in one of those one of those pinko stage discos or whatever, you're going into the family business. You're going to be a plumber like your father was a plumber and your grandfather was a plumber and your great-grandfather was a plumber. But it's like being a lobster. It's like, no, Grady, you're not going to be an architect. No son of mine is going to be dancing in one of those pinko building discos. You're going to be a lobster like your father was a lobster and your grandfather was a lobster. No, you ain't going to be one of those
0: people who've accepted their own body and haven't somehow monetized their own body shame in order to make themselves a public display of the xenophobic undercurrents of our country. You're going to be a lobster. You're not going to be accepting of your own self and define yourself by your own self-worth. Instead, you're gonna display yourself for all mankind to jeer at,
1: like we were meant to do. It's that trope of you're gonna go into the family business, but the family business is just like you're a freak, and not in like the circus sense. I mean, also in the circus. I mean, it sense. is the circus sense. It is the circus sense. You're a you're just a li- like you your your life is inherently about how freakish you are.
0: Yeah, that's the thing that was really fascinating to me while doing a bunch of the research because, like. This, this story, Grady Styles has come up on the podcast before. We've talked about him a couple times. And I think he's like a little kind of like weird factoid in pop culture now. Like there's an X-Files episode based off of him. Um, but the thing that's really interesting to me about this story, I think most people are interested in, in it because it's a spoiler alert. It gets really dark and there's some murder. And also it's unusual because... The protagonists are people that are involved in the like Kearney sideshow world and they all have these phys- physical maladies. And I think there's an, an immense sense of voyeurism and um, body shame, this weird like hierarchy of body shame where people like they either, you know, they're, they're curious innocently or more than often probably more like, oh, my God, thank God I have all my fucking fingers on like this asshole You know, like there's a weird undercurrent of that all here. But the thing that's really the thing that's really sad to me is the perpetual nature of this cycle that just keeps repeating. And like, I don't think he's a particularly reliable narrator. Like we're going to see him talk later in a video clip and he says some stuff that's like, who knows if that's true. Um, but there's a part of his act where he claimed that going back to the 1840s, his family had ectodactyly and they've all been car- carny sideshow people. Now, is there a increased level of difficulty gaining um, employment as somebody with a handicap or a disability, especially in times that are not now? A hundred percent. And I don't, I don't judge anybody for going into a line of work where they can are just trying to pay bills. Like that's not what this is. But I do think there's a weird undercurrent on both sides of this, where it's people wanting to exploit these individuals who just look different than us. And also there's a weird undercurrent in the family where they, I don't know this, but it kind of feels like He's trying to have children in order to make money off of this disease because they can't have a job. It's very difficult to gain employment otherwise. And I don't know if that's true, but that that's how it feels.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, we're we're, we're like two minutes into the episode. And we're already getting into the heavy stuff, but it's similar. It kind of reminds me of what we've talked about on the show before multiple times with the Nasubi episode and just the general thing of like, The weird symbiotic relationship between the exploited and the exploiters, where the exploiters create a dynamic and a situation where the exploited need something or desire something. And they basically create a power imbalance where that person will start to want it and start to willingly do things that are like really demeaning, really exploitative but it's because they've been put into the position where it's like you know you 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 have ectodactyly you have this fairly debilitating disability we'll, what what the fuck else are you going to do like we we'll give you money we'll give you a life we'll give you you know something that nobody else is going to give you because you're a fucking freak and then the per- and then that person grows up in that culture and that environment and then eventually it's like it becomes part of their DNA you know it's like and and as we're going to get into it is It is very
0: apparent that this stuff had a tangible negative effect on him and everyone in his orbit. It's not like they were like, yeah, I'm like a circus juggler and like I've trained and have this skill and then, you know, people watch me juggle and then I go home at night and I'm a well-adjusted, emotionally balanced person. And it's, it's not like, oh, I have this condition and it makes working hard, so this is how I make money. But at the end of the day, I've accepted who I am and I'm comfortable in my own skin and it's not my fault. This is a genetic condition and life is beautiful and I enjoy living it and I'm here to enjoy the amount of time that I have on the planet. That is not this guy's story. There could be that story for somebody with ectodactyly. This person is fucked up and a large portion of that comes from this cycle that we're talking about of like the trauma that is self-inflicted and the trauma that is internally inflicted feeding itself. So here's some, some photos of um, young, uh, young Grady styles, one when he's probably about 10 years old and one where he looks like he's in his late teens, early twenties. Um, how would you describe these two photos? And can we get a brief description of this Hawaiian print jumper that he appears to be wearing at 10 years old?
1: Oh yeah, that's amazing! I fucking that's the greatest part of this. It's either a jumper or just like a shirt and a, and shorts that are just creating the illusion that it's one piece. But he's got this, yeah, he's got this Hawaiian patterned jumper shorts co- combo going on, and it's 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 quite a look. I, I I I can't say I'm not jealous of this of this strip here. Yeah, so he's sitting here posing, um, kind of showing off his ectodactyly. Um, which is essentially like the thumb. It's your the hand. Everything is missing from the hand except for the thumb. Like the in, the intact thumb. Imagine the intact thumb of, of of your hand, just kind of like floating, protruding off of your wrist, and kind of just free floating and then the other and then the other part of it is just the other side of his hand and his pinky so it's just it's just like it's just those two things and it's almost as if like the three the three fingers in the middle as well as the entire palm of the hand has just been scooped out of his hand and it's just those two things like he's doing like a permanent hang ten or whatever motion and yeah the he also it also manifests
0: in his feet where he has he has no shins And so it's basically like his legs end in his kneecaps with like maybe 10% of his shins and the backside of his feet are like fused with his shins. And so he has like two toes or three toes. And they also kind of from a distance sort of look like lobster claws, but they really aren't They're They look more like they're just like the back of your foot is fused with your leg. Um, and his and his legs appear to be permanently almost kind of in like a sitting cross-legged position.
1: Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of curled inward um, from his knee. They taper down, get like smaller and smaller, and kind of curl curl backwards. So I guess I could see how you could say like if you put his legs together, it kind of almost looks like a lobster tail.
0: Um, and then this this uh, fourth photo here is a, a photo that's taken at a sideshow event with him, who's now probably in I don't know late. 40s, early 50s, and uh, his two of his four kids, the two that have
1: ectodactyly, one of his daughters and his son. Um, and this and this photo almost looks. I mean, if you didn't know like the the backstory, back this photo almost looks like adorable. Like if if you didn't know the the truth about these this guy, it's like oh, this family and they're all they're hanging out and they're in this culture and community that they've built and. The, the the little kid is sitting on on Grady's shoulders and Grady's kind of like smiling and then the kid's like looking down at him and smiling and you, you it it almost is like oh this this family it's so it's it's such a joy but but you know but you know the truth and then this uh this last one is almost like a playbill
0: it's an image of uh Grady and his daughter sitting stand, sit both sitting next to each other um, they both have ectodactyly and the, the, the poster says, um, the lobster family, the fourth and
1: fifth generation. And it's been signed by Grady Styles. And, you know, aside from aside from the other ethical situation that we're talking about where it's like this exploitation of people with disabilities, monetizing, essentially like othering them, there's this whole other separate thing going on. With this generational business aspect of it, with Grady as well as his children, and it's something that we're actually talking about a lot today, where – and this is almost like the extreme – this is like the fucking extreme on crack version of this thing we're talking about today, which is that there are all these people that make content with their children who make like YouTube channels where it's like, you know, the Baker family, and then it's like the dad and the mom. Hey, man, why you got to bring my family into this? Yeah. Well, because I mean, you're you're a very popular YouTube channel. Um, yeah, where I'm the little kid. Yeah, you're the little kid, and like they just ref- they just refuse to like. You've been doing the, the the channel for like since you were a kid, and then they just kept pretending like you were a tiny child, and they won't they won't like break the kayfabe of it. I kind of love that idea. Like that sounds like a really good like
0: high concept for like a movie. It's like, it's like stepbrothers, but about influencer
1: culture where it's like, you know. Yeah. Or just, it's like one of those things where it's like somebody who was like a child star and then they, and it's like that, that, that trope you see where it's like child star and they grow up and then they're all like fucking fucked up and destitute. They're an alcoholic or whatever, but it's with like a little kid YouTuber, like, like that Jack kid or whatever, um, which is plays into what I'm talking about. These these families and they make YouTube channels and it's like, oh, you know, we make videos where we talk about like raising our kids or like the ones where they have the kids opening toys and stuff and reviewing toys or the ones where they like have little babies and they do they, they teach you about like baby stuff with the baby or whatever. And that that whole genre of content has just over the last five or so years just increasingly gotten more and more criticism. Because it's like you're just like monetizing and forcing kids to make content without their consent, really. Where it's just like you're, they're just, they're just, they're forced to like be in videos that they never said that they would be in. And there's like, there's literally all these, YouTube has been around long enough to where there are kids now who are like in their late teens who were child YouTube people who are now being like, my mom and dad exploited me. I hated doing these videos. It really fucked me up and they talk they they talk about it. And this is like the extreme version of that where it's like 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 I was kind of joking about before. It's like this this child born with a disability and from birth it's like you're my fucking cash cow, baby. You're joining the circus with me. And from and from the time you're born, you're like a you're 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 a circus freak without your
0: Choice. You, yeah, yeah, you have no, you have no chance to develop your own identity. But I think there's also a really difficult th- thread to, you know, or needle to thread there, where it's like, if you are a person with this disability in the 1930s, you probably don't have that much of an education. You're probably you've been raised in this world. It's the only thing you have access to. So of course you would try and incorporate your children into it because it's the only way that you know how to try and give them a leg up, you know, try try and give them a a sense of security. So it's this cycle that's like almost impossible to break.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. And that, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And it reminds me of, I'm just looking up the, I'm looking up this actor real quick. Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yes, Jean-Claude Van Damme. He was actually born in the circus. Um, he was a – They called him – when he was a little kid, they called him Mr. Splits. Mr. Splits, yeah. Um, no, so this, th- this reminds me of uh, – so listening to the director commentary for Spider Baby. And um, Spider Baby was written directed by this guy named Jack Hill. And in the movie, if you've ever seen it, there's this, the movie is about this like family of people who basically like the concept, the high concept of the movie is that there's this family of people who like over as they get older, their brains rot. So they, they start out as kids as kind of like normal, although like kind of like insane. But then as they get older, they get crazier and crazier and more and more psychotic. Um. And the beginning of the movie has this actor who's going out and like delivering something to to the to the house. And it's this actor named Manton Moreland. And listening to the director commentary of the movie, they were talking about the fact that when this movie was made in 1967, that was at the time, yeah, 1967, there was this genre of movie that was popular throughout the 50s and 60s. And it was basically like this like racist trope of like a black guy being scared. And it was like, it was like, it was like, they were kind of like horror movies, but it would be like an actor playing a very stereotypical black guy, kind of like wandering through a haunted house and being like, and like shivering and being like, Oh, and it was just this genre of movie that was popular. And there was these actors who were like known for being that type of actor. They were like, they were like, they had a name. I forget what it is. I'd have to listen to the commentary again, but they were like, You know, they were like – they had. there was like some phrase for this like black guy being scared in movies trope or whatever. And this guy, Manton Moreland, was one of these actors. He was like – he was like – he got a lot of work playing in these movies. But in the late 60s, these movies fell out of favor because it was seen as racist. It was seen as this like regressive trope. And so people stopped making them. And he was talking about the fact that uh, this guy, Manton Moreland – he basically went from having this lucrative career to like his his entire career drying up. It was like those it was like those silent film actors who, whenever whenever the, they brought uh, talkies in, they just lost their careers because they couldn't act like in that way. They were like silent actors, and when they had to talk, it was like oh you 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 can't do this. Um, and he was like he lost his career, and he was like upset about it. And he and they the, he he was cast in a small role in this movie. And when when they were on set making the movie, he was like complaining about it and being like these, you know, these fucking people took my whole life away. by you know, taking the taking, you know, what's wrong with a black guy acting scared? It's not a big deal or whatever. And he was like bitter and angry about the fact that he lost this career. And it reminds me of that, where it's like the this this oppressive system creating a dynamic in which you become dependent on exploiting yourself. And then it becomes hard to take it away, right? Because I think we could probably all agree that that was probably a good thing to stop making movies like that. I mean, it probably wasn't like it wasn't the worst trope in the world, I guess, compared to like blackface or like other types of stereotypes against black people. But it was still like not a great thing. And it was probably it was good and also inevitable that we would evolve away from that. But then you have to think about the fact that it did actually affect people who had grown to, to depend on that as their job. And that's like really fucked up. Like there's no, there's no clear answer to that. That's, that's just fucked up. You create a situation where people become dependent on something bad. And then whenever it's rightfully done away with you, you screw over a bunch of people. It's like an impossible situation. And, and, and I guess to just connect that, I just to maybe I got far away, but to connect that to what you were saying, it's like, yeah, it, it is it's exploitative that you would like basically just like draft your child into this horrible uh, line of work from birth. But it's also perfectly understandable that a, dyna- a dynamic has been created that has made that that person dependent on that. It's like, what, what is what choice do you have other than to like monetize your chi- your 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 children?
0: Yeah, it's not even. I mean, part of it is like the parents themselves are dependent on it for their livelihood, right? Which is less under, you know, less um, socially permissible. Um, but I guess you could theoretically make a case that, like, oh, it's like farmers having a bunch of children to help them work on the farm or whatever. I don't know. I don't think that. I'm just trying to place every side of the argument. But the the other component of it is like I had previously stated. What opportunities are available to lower income, physically disabled, culturally shunned individuals that are more than likely not going to be integrated in a positive way into society's existing power structures?
1: Yes, yes. I I, it, I actually – I just watched the new episode of Some More News um, and the, it was about – the, the name of the episode was Why Is It So Expensive To Be Poor? And it's like – it's exactly what we're talking about. It's like – Poverty is like intentionally like a like a like a glass box that you fall into, and it's like in, it's purposely made where you can't get out of it. You know, no matter how people act, like oh, like you just need to work harder or whatever. It's like it that there's it, it. It's like a it's a Sisyphusian task essentially,
0: which is actually really interesting because you know one of the things that I was thinking about. I mean, a this conversation that we're having is kind of circling like the culture of this carny sideshow world and the nature of the exploitation of it. Um, but just on a logistical level, when I was doing the research, I was like, what is it like, you know, to to live in this world to be a, you know, a, a carny or a, a, a sideshow attraction yourself? Like, what is what is what does that do to you? Like, how, how do you function as a person? Like, is that something you're excited about? Is it har- is it a hard life? It seems like it would be a hard life to be traveling all the time. And so I was Googling around and I found this like local news footage, like a mini documentary specifically about what it was like to be in the sideshow world in the 1980s. So this is a little bit after uh, the main stuff that we're going to be talking, which is kind of about the 60s and 70s and then stuff in the 90s. But this 80s footage of what it's like to be in a fucking uh, sideshow is crazy. It is surreal. Like it, it literally looks like another world.
1: Yeah. I mean, and what, what else do you do? I guess then create your own little mini civilization, whatever, whenever you've just been shunned, you know, from all society and just not even just shun, but like by default, your existence is like, you are not like us. Like your, your whole job, your whole life is, is surround centered around that fact or that con, not that fact, but that concept.
0: Yeah, you let's let's watch a clip of this because we can talk more about it. Because they literally have like one of the girls, her, one of the women's sideshow act is just answering questions about herself. Like she's not performing. People are just like, "Have you ever like had sex?" It's crazy.
2: Long tired days. Long.
1: Hold well, before we even watch this, I just have to say I loved that little opening splash the little like the the, the, the like
0: tracking getting yeah, getting and the, itself and the, and
1: the little logo the key video or whatever that was that was that was amazing
2: long tired days longer nights waking to midway noises fast food smells crowds heat it's life in the sideshow dolly wagon's yeah. life
3: no, geez, i'm gone, Brad.
2: The day begins with brunch. It's Dolly's only real meal and a cherished ritual that she stubbornly guards. She devotes these free moments to going over show details or reminiscing about her deceased husband, a magician with the show who surprised her one birthday with a battery-driven wheelchair. For Bruce, breakfast is the start of a day-long eating binge. With the ambition of being the world's fattest man, he uses a genetic flaw and a passion for food as a way to make a living. Each month he grows by thirty pounds, the weight gain fueled by endless junk food, including six foot-long corn dogs for a mid-morning snack. Balancing on whatever will support him, Bruce chooses to eat alone by the semi-trailer truck that doubles as his mobile home. Well Peter, a midget cum fire eater comes.
1: I love how there was something just so like relatable about that guy just sitting there eating that corn dog. Like he was just like, he was just like eating, he was just like eating so peacefully. And yet like he had this look of, of like this, 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 this like, I don't even know how to describe it. This world weary look. He was like, I'm just trying to eat this corn dog, man.
0: Well, the other part of that too, that's really interesting is like most of these people have physical maladies um, that they were born with conditions. Right. And his, they say, you know, he has a, he has a, uh, some sort of dietary condition or metabolistic condition or something, but they don't say what it is. But that guy is the only one that's coming close to choosing to be in this life. You know what I mean? Like, you don't wake up and eat six fucking, fucking corn dogs. Fucking carbo loading. Dude, like that is so intense. And that's gotta be a brutal life. Eating that much cannot be
1: fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they they talk about that whenever they have, even for like the short stints, whatever actors like gain weight and stuff for roles. They're just like, yeah, like having to like eat that much food is not enjoyable. And they're just talking about for like six weeks or something.
0: It's And, and you know, like what what is that guy's background that he woke up or, you know, things happened to him in his life? And he ch- he's like, I'm going to try and become the world's fattest man. That is like there's there's so much to unpack there.
2: Egg trainer. The Sideshow has been his life for three decades. His real love, he claims, is show business. This morning, he focuses on the Midway, gauging the growth of the crowd, waiting for Dolly's arrival at the tent and showtime.
3: I would like to, if possible, have a moment of your time to explain to you about some of the unusual people we have. Miss Dolly Reagan, picture up behind me right here over the doorway. Dolly's for real, not masquerading or made up for this occasion. She is not going to turn to stone before your very eyes. Now, that would have to be a trick, an illusion and we don't have. My again. legs are the worst. The both oh, of my legs are very hard. They're very
0: so, this this woman, Dolly Reagan, um,
3: my legs were too
0: appears to be maybe a little person who has some sort of congenital bone disease,
3: she
0: which she's explaining right now. ...the of her
3: fever, I took calcium from her body. And my dear friends, I got too much calcium. How did you actually get involved then with uh, the show? I was already 23, an adult, and I was selling tickets for the Kinsman Club, anything to make a buck. All these carnival people kept coming up to me. I didn't know that I had been the subject, you know, that they wanted me on the show. They come up to me, yak it with me. You know, talk to me, kibitz with me. I kibitz back with them. And uh, pretty soon my girlfriend was wheeling me down to the pride children. And I'd never been in one before. Scared. And I said, what are you doing? She says, you're being offered a job. Would you like to ask me any questions? About the only thing I get asked is, have I ever walked? The answer is no. Yeah, young man. Have I ever been married? Yeah. Children?
1: Are has anyone ever loved you
0: yeah that's and that's kind of what i was saying earlier of like the you know by the 1980s people weren't like throwing rotten fruit and jeering at people who just simply look different than most of us um but there's now like a polite level of xenophobia happening where it's just like so have you ever like had sex, like it's so weird. It's so weird.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it like obviously this would not fly today, but it kind of reminds me of when you hear any like I don't know if you've ever ever heard this or seen this or whatever clips or whatever. But like anytime any porn star ever goes on a podcast, that's just it. Just it, it's literally just them being like, "How many dudes have you fucked at the same time?" How many dicks have you had inside of you at the same time? Do, your, do you have a boyfriend or do, or a girlfriend? Do they get jealous? Like, it's just them, like, it's, th- it's just this. It's just, like, asking them questions about their own, like, body and, like, sexual activity.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's very surreal. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about this, you know, kind of, like, mini local news doc or whatever is that, It's trying to flip the narrative. It's trying to be like the it's trying to almost kind of like put the positive spin on it where it's like there are people and they're doing their thing and like they're not being exploited. And we are definitely not exploiting them by pointing a camera at them and talking about them. We're telling their story, which is like also deeply strange to me that you would actively engage in the exploitation and then be underhanded about the exploitation. Like we all know what this is, you know, like, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm really saying because what's the alternative? Like, they're just like the 1980s carnival Barker where it's just like, look at these fucking BT Barnum freaks or what? Like, no, I don't, I don't want that either. Like I want them to be treated with respect and like valued for who they are as people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a, uh, yeah, it's it's just like a fucked up cycle like you said before.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a no-win scenario. It's the Kobayashi Maru of exploitation and empathy. No matter which way you try to understand,
1: it's just the other side in, envelops you. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you got to think like for some people like Like, sure, maybe certain people might have been able to do other things, but there are certain people that maybe, like, you know, their disability might be so debilitating that, like, doing something like this might be the only possible way that they could ever make money.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, specifically, like, the, you know, the wolf boys, you know, like, men who have, like, deranged hair growth follicles or whatever, like, could they literally work in an office? Of course they could. I'm sure many of them are very intelligent people who have a a multitude of skill, but humans are shitty and we judge people for the way they look and it's very hard to gain employment in that kind of field when you are covered in hair in a way that is not traditionally accepted like i'm not excusing
1: it i'm just saying it wouldn't even be something you could quantify like they just they just wouldn't hire you and there would not there would never be any explanation of that they would not be like well we're not hiring you because you're hairy like it just it just you just wouldn't get hired and you wouldn't even get an interview you wouldn't get an interview because
0: the moment that you sent in your resume yeah they would just know they'd be like oh fuck this is our small town in Iowa, and we know the one wolf boy that lives here. I don't want to deal with that. Fuck that. When not touring the country, Grady Styles and his family were nestled in a quiet home in Gibsonton, Florida. Gibsonton had evolved since it was initially founded. During the time Styles Jr. lived there, it had become a respite for circus and sideshow performers alike, especially during the winter seasons complete with local businesses fully equipped for little people, even calling itself home to the world's tallest man, Al Timoni. The town was a bustling oasis for people from unconventional backgrounds. So this is an excerpt from the documentary uh, Carnivals, and it is two characters uh, two characters talking. Um, one is called The Fat Boy, and the other is called Lobster Boy, as we know. Grady Styles. Uh,
3: what did you used to say? He says I don't consider my. I used to say Paul and Jack are like human being but I don't consider myself in a human race. That's right. I've got no use for human race. But he's part of it if he likes it or not. Yeah. That's the that used to be.
0: That first voice own. is Grady Styles. The second one is one. the I like I very want heavy to set, I don't want to quote unquote, act act
3: act act fat boy. No use for human race. Human race is not a hell on the wheelbarrow. Well, not all of it. <laughs> Not all of it. 99% of it, friend, and that's a pretty bad odds. In the last week he makes me do he said, now you pay my bills and gives me $35 a week to live on, and you take the show. So naturally I had to do it, because if I hit, I've got to come out way ahead. Of course, if I get bad weather like this, he's got security. He's got his bills paid. That's what I was after. And the thing is, uh, so far, so bad. <laughs> yeah, it was bad weather, see? But he give up early when the fairs are getting ready to start, see? And it, I have I've had so you many know, people in the business No, I've had more people in this business do that. Look at me. That great. It's uh, it's uh, it's a crazy thing, but when you're out here to make a living, you try your best to do it. you got to knock the other guy out of the box to do it,
0: So that, that's that's greedy styles talking, and he's kind of got this midwestern kind of lilt to his voice. And, and frankly, seems he seems like kind of like an upbeat, fairly positive kind of guy. You know, he's just kind of like, I'm just trying to pay bills. And, you know, I'm just out here just trying to pay bills.
4: The, to well, I didn't
3: know I was
0: the thing that's really fascinating about this is you I in Auburn, I, you know, I, watching it for the first time, I found myself
3: uh,
0: watching his hands move. Because they don't move in the way that I, that he, because of the ectodactyly, his fingers are jointed in the opposite direction that humans' fingers are normally ju- jointed. And, and then I started feeling bad because I was like really zoning in on his hands. And I was like, oh, man, maybe, am, I, like, am I just as bad as all these people that like paid to come like gawk at him? Like this is so fucked up that I'm like falling into the same emotional like othering thing. And then I remember that he's a murderer and I didn't feel too bad.
1: Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, he he killed multiple people. Super fucked up. Um,
0: did you have any observations or takeaways from that video?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just the thing I said before, which is like y- you don't watching that you don't like this doesn't seem like the guy who's going to end up like when you read the story, you just imagine this dude is like a hot headed, just like angry, like bastard. And he doesn't come off that way at all. He seems just very he almost seems like. Very well adjusted for somebody who was born into a circus sideshow family and forced into this this lifestyle. However, all was not as it seemed in this quiet little
0: town, boasting a population of just a few hundred. Because behind closed doors, away from the curious prying eyes of customers, Grady Styles Jr. had a dark side. Fueled by alcohol addiction, Grady was wildly abusive to both his wife and his children, Despite the seemingly docile appearance of the wheelchair-bound young man, he possessed a disproportionately strong upper body he would tackle his wife, knock her to the ground, and punch her and strangle her. He was also obsessed with the act of headbutting, which he did both to his wife and his children repeatedly. On one occasion, while assaulting his wife, his daughter Kathy attempted to break up the fight by wheeling Grady Stiles Jr.'s wheelchair in between them to attempt to separate them. However, this was a tragic mistake for the pregnant woman. Stiles' fury became refocused on her, and he beat her so badly that she prematurely went into labor delivering a child that died soon after
1: well every every bit of empathy (laughs) that was built up over the last almost an hour just topples down like a house of cards (laughs) like and in like the most palate cleansing paragraph of all time like that's just that's so much fucked up focused into one paragraph like i kind of the thing that obviously the thing that's really traumatic
0: there is that he beat his daughter who was pregnant so bad that she was forced into labor and the baby died. That's really fucked up. But the thing that's, I don't know why it sticks in my head is I just cannot imagine being headbutted by my father. Like if my dad head butted me, I would, I, it's so surreal. Like I, you know, like I, I can't really imagine like my specific father hitting me, he would never do that. But like I can imagine being hit by a father. Sure. Headbutting? I don't know why. I just can't wrap my head around being head butted.
1: Yeah, like that's headbutting is like a very aggressive fight move that you do against some guy at the bar or something like that. Like It's also just, like, weird. It's just, like, it's,
0: like, not something that you see in real life. You know what I mean? It's, like, something that, like, Jackie Chan does to get out of, like, a terrorist stronghold. It's really weird to me. And this will come back later. Put a pin in this. The idea of smashing things with your head might be a genetic thing uh, in their family, maybe? I'm not sure. You might have a mental picture of the Styles family living in a destitute scenario, constantly scraping by. However... That doesn't exactly seem to be the case. Grady Styles Jr. was one of the most famous characters in the sideshow circuit and was very well paid, with some reports saying that he pulled in close to 50 to 80K per season, which, you know, in the 1950s and
1: 60s money, is a pretty good paycheck. Holy shit. He's paid better than. A lot of people now. Yes, yes. Like the, I think the average me, the, the or the the median yearly income is like thirty seven grand or something like that, or maybe it's lower than that. Maybe it's like thirty. Despite having a life in the
0: sideshow business, it doesn't seem like Grady Styles' life was devoid of love, as you might think. His first wife, Mary Teresa, joined the carnival at the age of nineteen. They fell in love, and he reportedly was a warm and compassionate partner until he started drinking.
1: As of 2019, for the median income in the United States is 31 grand a year. Drinking brought out a dark side in the man. He became verbally abusive at first,
0: but that quickly evolved into physical assault. During their time together, they had three children, two of which had ectodactyly. They got divorced after an abusive altercation where Grady shoved Mary over ripped off her pantyhose and forcibly extracted a contraception device from her body. That is
1: so intense. Yeah, this is like this isn't just like, oh, this guy who we're talking about who faced a lot of struggles also was just kind of was, was a piece of shit. This is like this guy is like one of the worst pieces of shit you could ever know about. Like this is this is fucking extreme. Like I'm not gonna lie, what he literally did, I toned down
0: the language because I was a like, this
1: is yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we don't. There's no need to go into the graphic details. Like we're not like a fucking true crime podcast. Exactly. Or but, that's but I why get, I, was I get like, I get the gist. Yeah, we uh, you, we all know what's
0: happening there. Um, but just know that that's the toned down language version of it. Like I can't imagine living through that. Like, that's got to be just so surreal. Donna Stiles, one of his daughters, was looking to get away from this scenario at her first opportunity. She hated her father and knew just how dangerous the situation truly was. However, there was one problem. Donna was 15 years old. She had just met a boy who she had begun dating, but the young man, named Jack, was 18. The idea of his 15-year-old daughter marrying a legal adult did not sit well with Grady Stiles. He threatened multiple times to kill the boy if he didn't leave his daughter alone. However, they proceeded with their plans to marry and attempt to flee the home. So I'm
1: just going to point out here for a second. Yeah, that's funny cuz this is exactly what I was thinking like the fucking ethical pretzel of this is <laughs> Like I'm just going to point out that this story this story
0: is so fucking dark that it has me actively rooting for the statutory
1: rapist. Yeah, it's like it's like oh god, he mercilessly beat his family. Oh, Jesus. He like did this horrible, basically sexual assault act on his own daughter. Oh, God. Oh, but like he's really against pedophiles. OK, uh, like it's it's like this weird little like it's this weird little quirk in this.
0: But that, that's the thing. It's like it's in the nineteen fucking 70s or 60s or whenever uh, I think it's 78 is when this happened. Like, are we really saying that, like, the ethical boundary of, like, an 18-year-old should definitely not sleep with a 15-year-old when she's going to die in this house? Like, 100%, he's going to fucking kill her. So, are we really, like, it's, I mean, it feels really weird to be like, <laughs> that 18-year-old is really doing a good job saving the 15-year-old by marrying her. Yeah, it's
1: the 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 trolley problem or whatever. Yeah, it's it's very surreal and super fucked up. If you had the choice between uh, somebody getting murdered by a maniac or, like, I guess being groomed by, like, that that's a fucked up, it's a fucked up choice. It's really fucked up.
0: But, like, is it really grooming in this scenario? I don't know. Like, also, it's Florida. So, like, who the fuck knows? In 1978, you could probably, like, marry a nine-year-old
1: in Florida. And they were just like, cool, bro. Like, Florida, Florida's built different we'll pay for the wedding the state will pay for the wedding yeah like
0: we never do this it's so crazy like d- doing the doing the research for this episode multiple times i was just like this has to be the craziest thing in this story right and then there would just be something else that was even
1: crazier yeah and it's almost like it's almost disappointing how normal he seems when in those interviews because you read these stories and you you just want you want this guy that's just like the fucking back like you just want some fucking screaming maniac, and he's just like, yeah, you know, you just uh you just get along in this business. But that's the thing, though,
0: right? Is like that persona has to be a carefully orchestrated front in order to put at ease people that are coming to see him. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that yeah that that and that makes a ton of sense. It's like. Not that this is true at all, but the whole point of his existence in in this career is like, you are this weirdo freak thing. And so you know a lot of people probably in that same in the for in this for the same reasons, they find it fascinating. They also probably find it scary or like this person might be like dangerous or like they might hurt me or something like that. So you have to like you have to compensate for that in your personality and be very very disarming.
0: You have to figure out a way to build empathy, right? because people are there to look at you as non-human, so your superpower needs to be, oh, I actually can make a connection with just about anybody. Um, the problem being apparently as soon as alcohol entered his system, which he was obviously using as a coping mechanism for all of the internalized trauma and shame surrounding this condition that was not his fault and a life of having the identity of being a lobster boy. Like it's my heart goes out to him on one level and then all of the horrible things he did. I'm like, oh no, fuck this dude.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just no matter what your defense of these things are, like when you see those when you see those interviews, it's like these people don't seem happy. Like you can't you can't argue with that. D- doesn't seem like they're, they're doesn't seem like they're going through a great time. Doesn't seem like their lives are that great.
0: It's not exactly clear what happened next. There are conflicting reports, but surprising to no one, it didn't end well for Jack. Grady Styles either went over to Jack's house to see him, or invited Jack over to his house under the pretense of giving him the blessing to marry Donna. All that matters is ultimately Grady Styles Jr. killed Jack. As the sound from the shotgun blast rang out, Grady said to Donna, "I told you I would kill him."
1: It's like what the fuck? I, I know, dude. It's like that's like that's like from a movie.
0: The case went to trial, and the defense attempted to bilk pity from the jury by positioning Grady Styles Jr. as the victim because of his rough life and that it had warped his mind.
1: Well, listen, I, I may I may just be a poor country lawyer. But it seems to me as if, in reality, my client is the victim. Sure, they mercilessly beat and headbutted their family on many occasions, basically forcibly aborted his own daughter's child, murdered a innocent young boy who, let's be honest, was probably a pedophile, but... <laughs> But if you really look at it from my point of view, it's like they murdered him, but he didn't die. Anyway, let's just let this guy go. I I love the idea that it all ends with like,
0: look, I ain't no fan of pedophiles, but there are legal means by which to have them disciplined. We should not be killing the pedophiles. So I think we should definitely let him go because he killed a pedophile. So fuck it. Fuck it. It's, it's Florida. It's Florida 1978. Fuck it. Fuck it. It's Florida
2: 1978.
0: Star Wars has just come out. Pedophilia. That shit's
1: got to go. I did crazier shit than this on the way to the courthouse. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lawyer just like outs himself. He's like,
0: I I organized a bum fighting uh, blood sport kumite.
1: Today, six people died. Today. Like I like I rushed it. Like I was like, oh shit, I got to get to the courthouse. Let me do this real quick. I did the whole thing
0: where, you know, they, were, they had the guy's head. It was covered in blood. And then they looked up at me and my gold throne made of human skulls. And I had lifted my hand and then I put the thumbs down. I wasn't going to give him a thumbs up. I was going to give him a thumbs down. Kill that bitch.
1: And then I got my car and I came here. And then I got my car and I came here. As you can see, my tie, little blood on it. That was from what? That was from from when the the head got ripped from the body and sprayed from that arterial vein. Little little fl- fleck of blood got my tie.
0: In the end, Grady Styles Jr. was convicted and sentenced to fifteen years of probation.
1: He fucking shot this dude with a shotgun. He shot him with a shotgun. Well, I might just be a poor country lawyer, but I fucking did it, bitches. <laughs> With a shotgun, multiple witnesses, and said and said the words, "I told you I would kill him," which by def by definition makes it premeditated murder. Like he literally said the magical key phrase, which makes it premeditated murder. And they were just like, "Ah, uh, nah, uh,
0: fuck it, probation." So the interesting thing about this is one of the main reasons why they gave him probation, which was to be served out on house arrest, is basically because they didn't think that they were going to be able to take care of his medical needs in prison. Um, they, they were worried that he was going to die on their watch and they would like basically be open to a lawsuit, which is like, who's going to sue him? His family hates him. Like, <laughs> the fuck? But they specifically didn't want him to be in uh, a prison because they thought he was going to die. Not not just because of the ectodactyly, but because he had other health issues as well because uh he wasn't taking good care of himself because he had all of this internalized shame and trauma from everything we've been talking about. Um specifically like drinking alcohol and stuff.
1: Um So this is where things get even crazier. Listen, I may just be a poor country lawyer, but it seems to me that if this fella here goes into your prison and then he dies, most likely within the next couple of months, I feel like you're going to get sued, probably by me, the poor country lawyer.
0: I really need more money to run my illegal, bum-fighting, space-hell kumites. (laughs) I'll tell you about space-hell later. That's a whole other thing. (laughs) (laughs) So here's where things get even fucking crazier. Uh, He's on house arrest, and somehow... He and his ex-wife, Mary Teresa, start talking again. She's just recently gotten divorced from her second husband that she had another son with. They get back together. That sucks, dude. It's so fucked. I mean, the that The cycle shows of you. trauma
1: makes the mind real.
0: The cycle of fucking trauma, man. The cycle of trauma. So they get remarried. Things are good for a little while. I think they have another kid during this time period. I'm not quite sure. Some of the reports saying were saying that they had a fourth kid not during this time. And some of, them, some of the stuff I read said that they did have one. I, I'm not sure exactly when they had their fourth kid. Um, they're living together again. Things are good. He's like on best behavior because he's just like, sorry, I killed your boyfriend, Donna. And then he starts drinking again. Because he doesn't have anything to do, because he's just in his house watching TV all day, and then things start getting bad, and he starts sexually assaulting his wife a lot, like a lot, like it's. I didn't even write out what he did because it just just picture bad stuff, not good things happening. So Mary, his his wife, who he's married, been married to twice now, basically hits a breaking point, and she's like, "I can't do this anymore."
1: She's like, "Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice." You, you're never never going to get fooled again. <laughs>
0: Fool me twice, I'll marry you, and then go to my son, Harry Glenn Newman Jr., a.k.a. the human blockhead, who also was a sideshow performer. He had an act where he would slam nails into wood by headbutting them. It's full circle, headbutting's back. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Live by the headbutt, die by the headbutt. Um, so he... She goes to Henry or Harry Glenn Newman Jr. and is like, This has got to stop. So she gives him $1,500 and is just like, We got to make this stop. So he is like, I'm going to go find a hitman. And you know what he does? He walks across their trailer park to their next door neighbor, a guy named Christopher Wyant. And he gives that guy the $1,500 to go kill Grady Styles Jr. Genius. Genius. Just the next door neighbor.
1: Genius. Nobody will look there. And he's like, He's like, Ugh. Uh, let me let, let me just ask you one question before I before I respond to your request. Are we in Florida? Uh, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so one night,
0: Christopher Wyant went into the trailer. Uh, Grady Styles was watching TV. Christopher didn't say anything to him. Just put a gun to the back of his head and shot him twice in the head. He he murdered him just like straight up. The police very quickly figure out what the fuck happened and arrest Mary, her son Harry, and Christopher Wyant. Um, and now uh, I'm going to have you, Spandrew, read a newspaper article published. This, this this all happened in 1992, by the way. Uh, I'm going to have you read this newspaper article that was published in the Florida Tribune in 1994. So this is the, this this second murder has now happened. It's been two years in the making that they're going to go to
1: trial. And this is the article that ran in the Florida Tribune. Although he was murdered nearly two years ago, the spirit of Grady Stiles Jr. was very much alive in courtroom six Thursday, and it was a chilling portrait. The carnival sideshow performer, known as Lobster Boy, woke up most mornings and started pouring double shots of seagrams, his mood growing more bitter by the drink. His daughter, Kathy Berry, testified, he lashed out at family members with his claw-like hands. He was like Satan himself, very cruel and cold-hearted and sadistic, she said. For much of Thursday, it seemed as if the dead man were on trial. One by one, relatives took the witness stand and summoned their worst memories of Stiles. Yet it is his wife, Mary Stiles, who is on trial on first-degree murder charges. Mrs. Stiles contends she hired a neighbor to kill her husband because she couldn't take the abuse anymore. In a much-anticipated ruling, Hillsborough Judge William Fuente decided Thursday that the defense could not use battered wife syndrome as a legal defense. The ruling came on the eighth day of the trial and appeared to squash any hope the defense had for putting on expert witnesses who would testify about the effects of the syndrome. But later, Fuente said he would reconsider the issue and make yet another ruling this morning. Defense attorney Arnold Levine has crafted his legal strategy around portraying Stiles as an abusive drunk, and family members who testified Thursday substantiated such claims. Mrs. Stiles, 56, clutched a tissue as she listened to her children recount tearful stories of their home life. Barry, Stiles' daughter, said her father slugged her one night when she was seven months pregnant, sending her to the emergency room where her baby had to be delivered by cesarean section. During the summer, the Styles toured the country on the Carnival Circuit. Styles performed as Lobster Boy, and Mrs. Styles helped operate the 10 in 1 show, which featured the human pincushion, the blockhead, and Burmese pythons. Styles also owned a Gorilla Lady illusion act and an animal oddities sideshow. Family members say his behavior worsened when the Carnival Circuit ended in October 1992 and they settled in Gibsonton. He drank buttermilk to soothe his stomach, raw from pints of alcohol. His murder was plotted by Mrs. Styles and a son in late October or early November 1992. In order to claim she was acting in self-defense when she arranged her husband's murder, Mrs. Stiles must prove she was in imminent danger at the time of the crime. Prosecutors Ron Haynes and Sandra Spotto pressed relatives to recall specific acts of violence by Stiles on the day of the murder, but the witnesses couldn't recall any. On the day of the killing, Stiles accompanied his wife and teenage son to Eastlake Square Mall for Christmas shopping. Donna Miles, the 31-year-old daughter of Stiles, recounted how her father shot her boyfriend in Pittsburgh in 1978. Styles, who was 55 when he was killed, was convicted of the murder and sentenced to 15 years of probation. His probation was nearly expired at the time of his own murder in 1992. Miles, a long-haul truck driver, said she begged her mother to leave her father. She described her mother's parents as very run-down, nervous, and scared in the weeks before Styles was killed.
0: Ultimately, Christopher Wyant was convicted of second-degree murder and received 27 years in prison. Harry Newman got first-degree murder and a mandatory life sentence. Mary got manslaughter and received 12 years. What do you think about this, Spandrew? Do you think this is – is it appropriate that these people were charged with murder? Should, should they have found another way out? Like what, what is the – what is your
1: I'll – start, I'll start from the easiest answer first. Uh, Christopher Wyant absolutely should have gotten charged with murder. He had no skin in the game. He was just a guy who – somebody was like, hey, will you murder this guy for $1,500? And he was like, yep. Like he, like he, just, he has nothing to do with the internal logic of this family. He, he just, a, he's just a guy who agreed to murder somebody for fifteen hundred bucks. Um, for, as far as the rest of it goes, it's and I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm being uh, controversial in saying this. It's very hard to sympathize with Grady Styles and feel bad for him for getting murdered. I mean, you can feel bad for him for the lifetime of generational trauma that he inherited and the horrible life that he lived and the way and the things that probably led him to be the way he was. But, you know, at a certain point, you can't just like when you're like violently beating people and killing people, sexually assaulting people, you can't just be like, oh, but it was because of his trauma. It's hard to sympathize with him bordering on. I don't sympathize with him at all. So I, I, I guess I don't. It's hard to say because I don't really. If they had gotten off, if the if the if the court had sympathized with them and Mary at least Mary had gotten some very lenient slap on the wrist, I don't think I would be mad about it. But I also don't necessarily know if I feel like I am confident in saying that I think she should have got off with it. But if if the court had sympathized with her, I wouldn't. I, I think that would be a fine outcome.
0: Yeah, the, this again is a Kobayashi Maru of impossible scenarios because. I can relate to two out of the three people and even Christopher Wyant to a certain degree. I, I don't know the situation there. Maybe he was dispassionately like, fuck yeah, killing is cool. Let's do it. But he was neighbors with these people for years. Like, There's no way he didn't know what was happening. And maybe this was him being like, okay, I'm going to help you guys out of this really bad situation. It's, it's really hard for me, though, to be like, there was no other way. You couldn't have just picked up your shit and left. Couldn't have packed your kids in a fucking car and just driven somewhere. You had to murder him. But then again, as we've seen, these cycles are so repeated and locked in. I understand why it got to this point. And I feel really bad that, you know, her son got a, a life sentence for protecting his mom. And that she got 12 years for trying to extricate herself from the situation. Did she actually extricate herself in a way that was good? No, we shouldn't kill people. Killing people is bad. But also, I think it's understandable why she would do that considering how he abused her. Like, even if she doesn't have in, an immediate danger to her life that's like he's running at her with a knife, he forcibly extracted contraceptions, contraceptive devices from inside of her with his hand. He's a monster, like fuck that dude.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I I I don't sympathize with him and getting killed. Really? I, if they had decided to let at least marry off, I don't, I think that would have been a good outcome. Um, yeah. Part of me is like, yeah, what, you know, if you, if you really just didn't want to be in the situation that badly, uh, why didn't you just leave? But I think that that's like, that's the thing that a lot of people say is like, why didn't you leave? And it's a little more complicated than that, you know? Because, you know, I think I think any person, any any abusive person who gets murdered by their abused partner, I think if they were given the choice between letting their partner leave or dying, they probably would choose letting them leave. But I don't think they ever really fully think that it's going to go that far. I don't think they ever think that they're going to get killed and um, the psychological and physical hold that somebody can have on another another person can be powerful. And maybe it wasn't wasn't as simple as I can just leave, you know.
0: Yes, agreed. Um, the other added component to this is that Grady Styles the uh, third, their youngest son, insists that it was not planned and that his mother just like said something needs to be done and that Harry Newman took money, you know, found $1,500 and then went and hired Christopher Wyant by himself. Like it
1: was, he was, like
0: she wasn't involved. Who knows? Who knows what the truth is there?
1: Yeah, which would even, would would even be even sadder if it really was that way. That she did she didn't actually ever ask anybody to kill him. She just literally, like if that were to be true, then a woman went to prison for 12 years for getting abused. Um, It's very fucked up. There's just there's just
0: no version of it that's not fucked up. In closing, I want to watch this video with you starting at 40 seconds uh, and see what you think about this, because this is also kind of weird and fucked up to me, because this is this to me is a synecdoche for how this story is remembered, Um, where, you know, I think you and I have done a fairly good job of painting every side of this weirdly fucked up thing. And yeah, let's let's watch this clip and see what you think.
4: Jessica's got flowers and we are in the middle of a cemetery here in Fontanassa, Florida, which must mean we're here visiting somebody of grim importance.
0: That's totally the rockabilly music of the guy who's hosting this video, if you're not yeah, putting that together. 100%. <laughs>
4: Deep in the middle of nowhere of Thontanassa, Florida, is a cemetery called the Sunset Memorial Gardens. But in the back of the cemetery, there's this, the International Independent Showman Garden of Memories. Basically, a lot of circus folk are buried here. The showman's rest is in the very back of the cemetery. There are some very cool tombstones here but we're going to point them out some of the most notable ones but we've come here specifically for a guy by the name of Grady Stiles you may know
0: him. also I just have to point out that this dude is wearing a fucking black on black trilby
4: because the showman's rest is rather small it was fairly easy finding the final resting place of lobster boy Grady Stiles it's not too far from the main path here buried right next to his parents and
1: it's gotta be said for the listener that in addition to this dude this this uh this greaser rockabilly dude um there he's with a woman a a a fair-skinned uh goth girl carrying a bouquet of flowers who hasn't said a word and she's just kind of walking around with him kind of with this like look on her face of mourning which is obviously a little exaggerated for the for the uh sake of the camera
4: in a plot it also has a marking for his wife Mary Teresa which I find very interesting you will
0: how fucked up you know is that? that they're buried next to each other
4: and there he is right there Grady F Jr born 1937 died 1992
1: final resting place of Lobster Boy. His wife doesn't even have an end year of her death.
4: How do we find the famous graves that we visit?
0: Is she dead? She might not even be dead yet. Let me look it up.
4: I use that for everything when we travel. I'm actually going to read an excerpt that they have on their website about Grady Stiles, Lobster Boy, and his wife, Mary Teresa, and the murder of Grady Stiles, because the story, his life surrounding it, it's insane. Absolutely.
0: All right, we don't need. We, this, this is all I wanted to. I basically just wanted to. She died November twenty seven. Oh no, 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 no. That's him. I think. I think she's still alive. I think that's why there's no uh, end date there. Maybe I'm
1: not sure. So she's just still alive and just like her grave is just waiting for her. Like what? Or 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 is it that they had that grave before and they just like couldn't afford to change it or something?
0: Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. I, I don't know if she's still alive. That's the thing. I'm not seeing an answer because all of the Wikipedia articles and shit are about him. You know what I mean? Well, she would definitely was alive in 1999 because she was on a TV show about it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if she's still alive. But yeah, uh, that to me is fascinating. Watching that guy making content out of uh, the exploitation of Grady Styles, the Lobster Boy's grave site. Even when he's dead, he's still being exploited.
1: Yeah. And it's also that thing that those type of people do a lot where they just like weirdly fetishize like horrible people. It's like people who are just like obsessed with Jeffrey Dahmer or the Night Stalker. And like, you know, I'm, I'm interested in serial killers like any person is. But like the people who are just like, oh, like. Jeffrey Dahmer, like, people who, like, like think that, like, who, like, worship them. Like, who worship Charles Manson and, like, wear shirts of him and shit and call him Uncle Charlie and all that. Like, it's people like that. It's, like, really weird. Yeah, it's very – it's deeply disturbing to me. Um, I think
0: my final thoughts on this subject are – normally even if it's a hot take i feel like you and i come down on one side or the other of whatever the subject matter that we're talking about is whether somebody was wronged whether somebody was fucked up or whether you know the the story itself has a happy or sad ending or whatever like i feel like there's usually some version of we are able to come to a conclusion a definitive point or a underlying message or a or Big, a greater meaning, meaning uh, for this story, and I think ultimately mine is for this specific case that the cycle of trauma and exploitation is so convoluted and Ouroborosian. is that a word? I don't know. It's so linked to that idea of Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail, that it's it's in it's you can't disassemble it. It's inextricably linked to itself, and it is so fucking disturbing and painful and utterly fascinating and i totally understand why people are still talking about this in these weird cult internet corners that you and i are both a part of but i also find it deeply strange that he's not viewed with a little bit more admonishment um yeah what are you what are your thoughts Andrew?
1: Yeah, I I mostly agree with what you're what you said. And ultimately, I guess my final thoughts on it are, well, I might just be a poor country lawyer, but this situation is fucked up and I don't have the philosophical equipping to really unpack it in a way where I can definitively say one way or the other what my final stance on it is
0: (laughs) (laughs) on that note. I'm Dave Baker. This has been Deep Cuts. Uh if you like to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com. Although, I'm not going to lie to you. All my books are set to sold out because I currently am living in France, baby. So if you want my books, you got to go to Barnes and Noble or your local comic book store where you can pick them up.
1: Uh and he could have left his he could have left his books with me and I would have fulfilled all of the orders, but he didn't fucking think of that. I literally didn't think of that until like
0: the day I was getting on the plane or I think no, it was the day I, I think it was the day I landed in France. You texted me that and I was like, fuck, why didn't I do that? That was fucking stupid. Anyway, uh, Spandrew Spice, where can people find you on the Internet?
1: You can find me sitting down on a curb and just slowly contemplatively eating a corn dog one bite at a time. And you can't find me on social media because I don't use social media. But if you want to check out our dear, beloved Papa Pricey's book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, you can look at that at dapricerights.com. You can follow us on social media on Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast. Join our Facebook group where we talk about the show and make memes. At the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, you can join our Bitly server where we talk about the show, make memes, and talk about other things. Bitly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord. You can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can go to our website, uh, DeepCutsPod.com. Click on the shop. You can buy hats and shirts and all that kind of stuff. You can buy our uh, Mystery Treehouse Junior Sleuth shoulder patch. And that is that.